Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley, and today we're joined by Dr. Lowell Pritchard, otherwise known as Rusty. Rusty Pritchard is a natural resource economist and is vice president of Tear Fund USA, which is an evangelical nonprofit that works a lot along. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Dr. Rusty Pritchard is a natural resource economist and vice president at Tear Fund USA an evangelical nonprofit that works alongside local churches all over the world to overcome poverty and injustice. He has worked for over 30 years at the intersection of environment and international economic development, and he has worked with Tear Fund since 2013. Between 1999 and 2006, he helped to create and lead Emory University's Department of Environmental Studies. Rusty and his wife Joanna have been married since 1960. I'll have to say it again. Rusty and his wife Joanna have been married since 1989, and they live in Decatur, Georgia, where he is an elder at All Souls Fellowship. They have a son away at college, a son in high school, and a daughter in middle school. Rusty will be speaking with us on the topic of his recent lecture, Creation Care and Hold Life Discipleship which he presented during our Goodness of Creation and Human Responsibility Conference. His lecture and others from the conference will be made available through our website. Glad to have you with us today, Dr. Pritchard. Oh, it's great to be here and call me Rusty. That's what I'll do then. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, what's, your, what's your journey, the journey of faith and academic journey, how you ended up at Tear Fund? Let's start with your uh, your spiritual journey. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, my spiritual journey has proceeded in uh, spurts rather than be any sort of continuous, monotonically uh, increasing spirituality. I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home where God was honored. We were part of Southern Baptist churches where the gospel was preached. I was five years old when I understood that God wanted me to belong to him, that he loved me and came to rescue me. And I prayed with my mom by her bedside um, and see, my faith took a leap forward in high school as I really began to think through apologetics and the Bible came alive for me, but God still had to shake me out of thinking that following him meant just thinking the right things, that he wanted my whole life to be transformed. So I rededicated my life while I was in high school. Tell us, uh, where did you go to college? Oh, I went way up north uh, to Duke University. We were in Florida, so it seemed like I was going up north. It was in the south, but not of it. But say there, there are a number of people uh, that are listening who will find it amusing that you describe Duke University as being way up north. But uh, it is North Carolina, uh, be that as it may. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. So you go to Duke. Uh, what did you tell us about your studies there and then your ministry? Yeah, I studied uh, zoology uh, with the view toward uh, understanding the history of science and um I also was part of campus fellowships. I was part of Campus Crusade and InterVarsity while I was there. But I became really, really involved 
in a local Baptist church that met just off campus, Westwood Baptist. And the pastor who worked with college students at that time is now there at Southeastern Seminary. That's uh, John Hammett. Yes, Dr. Hammett is a dear colleague and, a, and a very much a supporter of the Bush Center. Uh, so you graduate with a degree in zoology uh, from Duke, uh, undergrad or all the way through? Uh, that's undergrad. And then after Duke, I spent a year in Scotland on a Rotary Club fellowship. Uh, I was at Glasgow University studying more of the history of science, also getting a chance to take Latin for the first time since I uh, had worked on German when I was in college. Uh, and that was great. Um, studied a botany course as well, because I did zoology. You had to choose between zoology and botany at Duke. And I got to follow up with a year of studying botany and got to see uh, a lot of the field of Scotland, up and down mountains, on the coasts. It was wonderful. But before I left, you know, my, my church laid hands on me and prayed for me as I was going off into the dark and dying land of Western Europe. Mm. And, you know, what's amazing to me is that I discovered the great hope that there is of being a Christian in a post-Christian society. It was so different than growing up in the American South. Uh, so easy to talk about the gospel because um, you had to explain yourself everywhere you went. Nobody went to church by accident in Scotland. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was really refreshing to me. Um, and I uh, met my future wife there who had a great heart for Christian mission and who challenged me to realize just how culturally accommodating my own faith had been growing up in the American South. And that's where I, I heard of Cheer Fund for the first time while I was there. That's the organization I work for now, the Evangelical Alliance Relief Fund, T-E-A-R. And I discovered um, through other college students that Cheer Fund was really fundamental in the discipleship journey of lots of evangelical Scottish Christians around me. Folks who saw evangelism and working for biblical justice, not as like siloed conversations operating independently of each other. Before that, I would have seen Christian concern for the poor and for creation. It's kind of an optional extra to discipleship, not as a central part of the Christian experience. Yeah, so where is Tier Fund headquartered? Well, Tier Fund started uh, 52 years ago in the UK. Uh, uh, Christians who wanted to respond to a particular famine in West Africa in the name of Jesus and who felt like their typical avenues of giving were um, less likely to name the name of Jesus in their work. So they set up something that was kind of new and, uh, and they've grown since then into not just responding to disasters, but to do uh, Christian community development with the church in the driver's seat of the process, rather than as a passenger of some international NGO coming along with their own ideas about what poverty alleviation should look like. We want churches to be in the, in the driver's seat of that process. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the tendency to uh, for communities to operate within silos. I, 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 even even some well-intentioned communities don't intend to do that, but sometimes um, that ends up being the tendency. I, I've noticed this in Christian conversations about whether it's uh, uh, economics uh, and and markets. There is that there is that um, uh, arena. And then there are those who deal with uh, poverty and uh, human suffering, uh, that issue, that, that area. And then you have those who express environmental concerns and creation care. And um, sometimes one, it, 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 it's, if, if a person reads 
from the various communities, you begin to realize that, okay, they almost sound pitted against each other uh, at times. But you're saying Tier Fund tries to have a holistic integrated approach. Yeah, that's right. In fact, we, we call the approach that we take integral mission uh, with the sense that it is um, th th there's a robust integration of all the aspects of Christian life together as we walk with people who lift themselves out of poverty. The word integral mission arose in Latin America, Mission Integral, and it was a play on words of the um, what whole wheat bread is there, mm. that maybe they thought that the, the gospel that wasn't a holistic gospel that they had preached before was like the fluffy white bread. And what they wanted was to put the whole grain into the bread, like the whole gospel to the whole world from the whole church, very much in line with those Lausanne principles. That's, a, that's an interesting metaphor. So uh, after you finish your studies, um, you're at Emory for a while, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I did a PhD back at University of Florida um, and then came up to Emory to start an environmental studies department, which was inherently multidisciplinary. And I got hired as the token economist. If I heard you right, your studies were in zoology and botany. But by the time you come to, to Emory, you're an economist. Yeah, that's right. I. Yeah, so I integrated the zoology and botany for my master's degree, which was in an environmental engineering program. And we had a kind of systems approach, highly mathematical, but trying to solve real world problems. And I began to see that more and more of the problems that I was interested in solving were economic in nature. It's how people make a living using creation. So when I went in for a PhD, I had started in the economics department, but kept a lot of my links to um, folks in ecology programs. So uh, how, did, how did you transfer or how did you transition from Emory to Tier Fund? You know, I really enjoyed my time at Emory. I enjoyed being in the academy. I enjoyed teaching some of the world's smartest kids uh, about good development principles and good ecological principles. But um, I felt more and more that I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I left Emory to work for a environmental organization to work on farm policy. Uh, again, they were happy to hire an economist uh, because farmers are making a living from the land. Uh, the US Farm Bill ought to support those farmers as they try to do the right thing by, uh, by ecosystems. It ought to help them if they wanna set aside land to preserve biodiversity. That's something, that's an ecosystem service that they provide in conjunction with the cows or the chickens or the cotton or the corn that they might be raising. And there ought to be ways for society that benefits from those forests that they set aside or those field margins that they set aside uh, to be able to recompense them for the loss of income they might have. So the farm bill you know, is mostly about uh, agriculture, but it's also about some of those environmental services that farms provide for the people of the US. You know, when I listened to your talk, I was uh, impressed how uh, you mentioned how uh, when talking to non-believers, especially those who care deeply about stewardship of the environment and creation care, that there are several doorways for evangelism. I, I was very pleased to hear you connect evangelism with creation care. Um, what are the ways that we? What are the ways that we can we can uh, utilize that overlap in, a, in an effective way? What would be some of the ways that you would recommend? Yeah, overlap is a, is a great word because evangelism 
if it's going to work, it's really going to be contextualized. It's going to be, it's going to find those places of common ground. And there's a lot of that with folks in the environmental community. Um, many environmentalists are incredibly protective of creation and its integrity. They're offended at wanton destruction and heedlessness. They're awed by the beauty of creation. They feel compelled to behave responsibly and even make sacrifices in terms of consumption to protect the environment. They're not feeling just a vague sentimentality about nature. And for most of them, it's not anything like worship of the earth. They may not know what they worship, but they're already acting like caretakers. And that's a great foundation for a conversation about God's plan for humans in creation. They love God's world. They want to protect it. They think it's beautiful. That's a lot of overlap. So what is the proper balance then for, uh, for a, a, an evangelical Christian who wants to think of well about these things? How does creation care fit into the grand narrative? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Where does oh, that all fit in? Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. That's such a huge story there, and it really does kind of speak to that notion of having an integrated awareness of what God's project on planet Earth is. You know, so much of what passes for creation care theology feels like very plausible lessons in ethics taken from the Old Testament, which any religion that is a common sense approach toward reality would share, uh, that creation is a nice place, that we become greedy, we create environmental problems, and now that we know that, we should behave better and leave the world a bit better than where we found it. And that is all true, um, but it's not the Christian version of the story. It's not the version that we get from the Bible where it's a grand narrative of, starts with God creating this sacred space in Eden. Anybody uh, who studies ancient Near East religions would recognize that there's a kind of temple narrative going on there. And when it comes to put a, comes time to put an image in the center of the temple, instead of an idol, um, God puts an icon. God puts an, uh, to bear his image, he puts a living human being, Adam. Um, that's a really different creation account. That's what marks the creation account from Genesis. So makes it so different from other uh, neighbors in the ancient Near East. Adam is this mm. animate icon meant to reflect God's authority into the world and reflect the praise and glory of creation back to God in worship. Kind of like N.T. Wright talks about the image of God uh, as being like an angled mirror taking God's authority and rule and putting it out into the world and then summing up the praises of creation and offering them in worship. I mean, that's a, that's a really different starting point. Um, and that tells us that God's got a plan for creation. 
he, he, he loves this creation and he intends to have humans be his stewards intending this creation. Uh, and then Genesis 3, you know, to, to recap, these human image bearers, instead of exercising dominion over creation, they submit themselves to it. They serve and they submit to the words of this serpent, a created being, instead of fulfilling their vocation as images of God. They give up their power. They serve an idol. This serpent that we realize is standing in the place of Satan. And as a consequence, they lose their privileges and they're cast out of the garden. They get, instead of what might have been an easy yoke and a light burden from creation, uh, from the creation narrative, they, they get toil, trouble, thorns, and thistles. And they still get to work so, on the earth. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the mirror is now distorted. Is yeah. it is it now a, a funhouse murder uh, mirror? That's a great way of putting it. It's it's definitely cracked. And uh, they invited chaos back into this sacred place where God had pushed chaos out. He'd brought order out of chaos, and they sort of opened the door and invited it back in. You know, that's really the way Paul talks about the fall in the Book of Romans that. They made this decision that now impacts all of their descendants. Now all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God that we were meant to exhibit as God's images in this place. So starting from the point that we are image bearers, flawed as we are, and the mirror is cracked, but image bearers nonetheless, this puts the human role in the natural order in a very different place. One sometimes reads certain creation care advocates who sometimes they it's implicit sometimes it's rather explicit that humans are the sum and total of the problem and therefore we are a virus are a parasite um, that's the kind of language we see certainly we have caused creation to groan by us joining the satanic rebellion but we're not merely viruses. We, we, we have a positive role to play. That's right. I and mean, God didn't give up on his plan just because humans botched it at the beginning. His goal is still to have humans ruling his creation, putting things in order, um, now working with him, cooperating with him in reconciling and restoring all things as being ambassadors of reconciliation. But, you know, God launched a project to have Israel be that image bear, be those image bearers and to be a blessing to the world. They couldn't pull it off. Adam and Eve couldn't pull it off. But Jesus was not just like a plan B. All of this led to the fact that God himself was going to enter his creation. And Jesus as a man was going to be that image, that perfect image of God. And now he's calling us to go back and reclaim that vocation of bearing his image. So we we still had a power over creation. Wow, you can really see it in the current ecological crisis that this concept of dominion, which might've been seen as a flight of fancy of, of weak uh, ancient Near East writers. Um, today, when we look at the impact of humans on the planet, we have an impact on a planetary scale. Nothing is better attested empirically in theology than that humans do have, were granted dominion over the earth. But now we have Jesus to look to to rescue us from that idolatry that we'd fallen into where we gave up and served creation rather than serving God. Uh, Jesus is the one who's gone before us and he's defeated that evil one that was represented in the garden and set us free from that slavery so that we can go back to what he called us to, that we should be conformed to the image of his son.
no longer conform to the image of the evil one in the garden. We were, Romans talks about, I mean, I love this passage in Paul and in Romans 8, 28 through 30, where he says, we were destined for this. We're destined to be conformed to this image of the son. We're called to this. We were justified. We're made right with God and glorified, no longer falling short of the glory of God, but exhibiting it. And that's good news for us, but it's really good news for creation, which had been put in prison too, along with us when we enslaved ourselves to idols. And it's waiting for us to be revealed so that it can join us in our freedom and our glory. Wonderful picture there in Romans. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and it's wonderful how Romans, uh, as an apex of the entire biblical narrative, that uh, the spiritual realm and the material realm are not just two distinct worlds, but very much wedded. Well, the incarnation of Christ, uh, you know, testifies to, to the wedding of the spiritual and the material uh, in that here the Son of God has become a man. Uh, so this means that it is a very spiritual thing to care about creation. Uh, you mentioned working in, um, uh, in African context. Uh, in what ways would you say that uh, we Western Christians could learn from the global church in how to care for creation and fellow humanity? Do we, what are some of our blind spots? Yeah, I, I, I think the African brothers and sisters that I've had the chance to talk with through visits to places where Tear Fund is working really have a sense that in, when they are caring for creation, God is working through them and blessing their vocation. After all, they're like living so close to the land. This idea of Adam and Eve tending and cultivating the garden and caring for it and protecting it is not far off from their experience at all. And that really dignifies their vocation in agriculture when society says that farmers are the lowest of the low. If you had any gumption, you'd move out of the farm and move into a city and be mm -hmm. part of the industrial economy. Uh, understanding this creation narrative makes a big difference for them. They, they do see it in spiritual terms. They also see the traps that you might fall into, the, the being enslaved to systems as the kinds of things that God is going to deliver us from when he delivers us from principalities and powers. So many folks feel trapped in their poverty, that poverty becomes like a force in their life. They think of themselves as only being poor and they don't realize that bearing the image of God means that they can have authority over creation to put things right on their farm, in their families, with their relationships with uh, folks from other villages, from other ethnicities, from other nations, um, that God is really doing something big as he calls us back to be image bearers. So um, as we look at the environmental situation that has been brought on by uh, uh, human development, one detects two extremes. Um, that, you, know, you have Pollyanna on one hand and Cassandra on the other. Uh, there are those who uh, try to deny the problem uh, and, and say everything's fine, uh, the Pollyannas, uh, but there's also a lot of Cassandras, and, and I'm not sure the Cassandras do us a lot of favors either, in that if the situation is too far gone, then, then why try to patch up the Titanic? Uh, so uh, how, how do we... How do we show this balance? Would you say, how do you say it's a problem, it's serious, 
but it's not hopeless. How, 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 do you, how would you characterize the situation? So I've probably got a human response as a resource economist and a Christian response. And uh, the human response is that even in human terms, the world is not too far gone. There are things that we can do now about the environmental crisis that will benefit people now, make their lives better and more healthy, and they'll benefit people in the future. The cost-benefit analysis is all in favor of taking action. Historically, anytime we've taken action to regulate our impact on the environment, the payoff economically has been by at least an order of magnitude. But I think the thing that's missing here is faith that's paired with practical action, with a hope that Jesus is going to actually take the offerings that we have, the loaves and the fishes that we might bring to this huge problem, and he will magnify that impact and he will be the one who accomplishes change. Um, it's, it's not an accident, I think, that we know about some of these environmental issues in time to do something about them. It's a sign of God's grace in our lives that we've been able to study the way the earth works it's intelligible and we're intelligent. So there can be this, this reading, this thinking of God's thoughts after him, understanding how even big planetary cycles work and what our role in impacting them are. And we can do something about them. And all of this knowledge came in time for us to do something about it. We were not blindsided by this. As a Christian, this is maybe speculative theology, but I feel like this is God offering up some hope for the world that we can act on. So if someone wants to be involved in what you're talking about, what would be some of the resources you would recommend? Yeah, there's a lot of things to learn about how to live on God's earth that uh, we really ought to, to come back and, and revisit. Um, but I, I think, hmm, there's a couple of practices that might help and I'm not talking about the downloadable 10 tips for saving the planet that you can find uh, all over the internet. I'm talking about some countercultural nonconformist practices, like keeping a Sabbath, having at least one day a week where you declare your freedom from the treadmill of consumption and from addiction to screens, and you connect to God and to people and to the creation. You put away your credit card, don't go shopping shut off social media and connect to the people that you're with. That's like a radical practice that will fundamentally reshape and renew our minds. Another practice I always recommend is putting up a bird feeder. This sounds crazy, but you have to realize that Jesus gave us command to look at the birds of the air. Birds are this perfect bridge to knowing and loving creation. Without too much effort, you can learn to recognize every single species that comes to your feeder. You're like Adam naming the animals or Solomon from First Kings, who was an outstanding bird watcher or like Jesus. So the question is, how can you be a steward of creation without seeing it and knowing it and loving it? That's, I think, the place to start in response. Uh, my wife will uh, rejoice to hear you, your advocacy of bird feeders. We, we have uh, several outside our kitchen window and we love looking at them also. We've been listening to uh, Dr. Lowell Pritchard, otherwise known as Rusty Pritchard. Uh, he is uh, a natural resource economist and vice president of Tier Fund USA. Uh, at, and Dr. Pritchard, um, can they go to your website? Is there some, some what, where would they go? Yeah, you can find resources on creation care and climate change in particular because the people we work with around the world are concerned that we should be talking about it in the West. And that's at tearfundusa.org. You've been listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. Take a moment. If you haven't rated us already, 
give us five stars and drop a note and we'll appreciate it. Have a great day.